Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy, and I am joined here today by my lovely co-host, Dr. Mim Fox. Hello, Mim. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a busy summer. It's been a good summer. Time to get into it. Let's get into it. I I just want to get into this one straight away because it's a practice piece. I know. It's a practice piece, but it's a practice piece set in a really busy setting, Liz, right? Hmm. Like it's fast paced, this one. And I'm, I'm chuckling because I think you just have to listen to the way in which this wonderful social worker tells his story. It is like, it's very fast paced. Yeah. You know, when we talk about um, embodied environments where you can tell about an environment because of the sounds, the smells, the vibe, the feeling. This is one of those stories where the social worker is actually telling you the story of being in an emergency department, but telling it with the feeling and fervour of energy that happens when you're working in an emergency department. And the pace. Oh yeah, the fast pace. When I was working in emergency and I would take students in with me, I used to have to say to them, You've got to pick up your pace in walking and talking. Yeah. And it took about a week for that to happen. But I reckon this is a great piece for people to listen to because this is a normal pace for an ED health worker. But I also want to reassure listeners we're going to have a transcription too because there's so much that he's telling us in relation to working in the psychiatric or the mental health space. Yeah. And this is a night shift as well. And this is quite an unusual environment for social workers to work in. So it's really special. We don't see that as much in New South Wales health. This is set in Victoria. And so there are some very fundamental differences that we'll we'll pull out, Mim, in our in our post story discussion, but it is a special one. You know, Liz, I've always felt um, that my time working in emergency departments, I felt really comfortable in that space. And uh, I think, you know, people always say to me that I talk really fast. You are built for ED work. Yeah, I think maybe that's why I felt so comfortable because actually I do move really quickly. I was one of those kids where my mum would have to stop me at the side of the road physically with her arm across me because I would walk out onto the road really fast. So I think um, the emergency space, it's a special one, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Look, this um, recording as well, we want to do a shout out to Felix. He was a student with us through those really hard lockdowns that Victoria had uh, that went on for a really long time. And um, and he did this recording at that point in time, which I think is true credit to him, right? Because actually we've had some amazing stories come out of that period. Thanks, Felix. Let's yeah. listen to it now, Min. Sounds good. 
I was working a night shift. Night shifts are funny. The first lesson I learned on night shift was a doctor telling me that when there was a whole heap of sweets in the middle of the room that apparently there's no calories if you eat on night shift. I learned quickly that is inaccurate despite the fact that a doctor said it. So I don't eat so much now on night shift and replace that with fruit, which no one may care about, but it does give you a sense that night shift is a little bit different and it is often busier. The peak time for mental health presentations in emergency departments is generally about eight o'clock in the evening. And to start a night shift, you start at 9.30 in the evening and you work through till about 8.30 the next morning. And there's a lot less people on. It's basically you as the mental health clinician there. And I guess at the end of the day, my job is about risk and assessing risk. But also I say to people that I, I teach and I train that every risk needs a plan. So when someone is talking about um, what issue is going on and what their risks are, we need to be mindful of that and putting something in place that can support them. So there are a lot of risks that come down and people generally just think it might be the suicide risk or the self-harm risk or the aggression risk. And those are predominantly what we often deal with, um, unfortunately, and sadly for the people for that experience. It. But there's a whole range of other risks that we have to consider when we're meeting with people and supporting them, like employment and housing, family and social, all those. We're social beings and as a social worker, we have to pay you know great importance to those things. Um, and those can be burdened by people that might have long-term illnesses, for example. Um, also things like you know sexual safety uh, risks, driving risks. There's so many more that I won't go through in great detail, but we have to support people through that and, and try to put in a plan. So night shift, um, the story I'd like to talk about is um, a person that was, has a history of experiencing bipolar affective disorder. And I just guess to set the scene, night shift is an interesting beast. It's kind of quiet at about three in the morning because we're trying to get people to sleep. We turn off as many lights as we can, but it's often interspersed with loud noise. If you've ever spent a night in an emergency department, you know it can be very difficult to sleep. Whatever you're there for, and imagine having a mental health problem on top of that, you're probably on a hard cubicle bed. There might be lights around. There's nurses coming in, taking obs. Um, there might be someone doing tests on you. Doctors can come in. People can come in at all sorts of hours. You've just got to sleep and they want to ask a question or ask another question you hear the phone ring, you might hear people in staff base having a bit of a laugh or a bit of a, you know, a talk or a conversation, things like that. You might wonder, are they laughing at me? Especially those that are experiencing, you know, a mental health problem, you might see your clinician in there. That's the nature of emergency. I guess you need to, um, as a worker, get through those night shifts and get through those roles and have a conversation with your colleagues. But as a, a person that's in emergency, that's kind of the atmosphere that you might be experiencing, a little bit of a lull at times, then sometimes interdispersed with a very loud crisis. So someone might be coming in with um, a mental health disorder, which is, you know, quite disturbing for them and those around them. You might get intoxicated persons coming in late in the evening as well. You might have someone that is having a stroke or a heart attack and a lot of distressed people and a lot of loud machines going off and beep, 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 beeps and, you know, all those sorts of noises of equipment and trolleys being wheeled around. So that's kind of night shift. It's a bit of an interesting beast. I was in the process of supporting another person that had come down um, feeling, you know, sadly quite suicidal. And uh, whilst I was assessing that person, there was quite a commotion just behind me. So um, I was in a cubicle about probably 30 metres from where I was. We have what is called the, uh, we call it the ambulance bay. So there's a back door where people can come through, ambulance and police, rather than going through the front um, triage area, which is where people see the triage nurse and the Australasian triage scale gives them a triage category and they either wait in the emergency department waiting room or they come through. But because police and ambulance uh, obviously have a demanding role, we have a separate process for them. 
So they came in and I looked across and there was a uh, middle-aged female dressed in a red two-piece bikini um, with about six police and very distressed. It was you know, quite unfortunate and quite um, sad for her. Very angry about being brought into to emergency department. Very angry about the imposition of having mostly male police bring her in. Um, and yeah. You know, how would you feel about being dragged into emergency when you don't want to come in? It's just not, no one wants to go to emergency generally to begin with. So imagine being brought in when you're, you're thinking that you're going about your own business. So I noticed that and um, I don't know if I mentioned it was in July. So it's kind of like the smack bang in the middle of winter at about three in the morning. It's not really conducive to being in a red two-piece bikini. So I noticed that and I finished supporting the person that I was uh, assessing and then the next thing I do, and there's a lot of background that'll, that'll happen um, before you go and um, assess or support someone, and that is to get the background information. I think that a lot of people don't realise how much behind the scenes information can go into um, supporting a person. Um, and coming up with as much of a thorough assessment as you can. So the first thing I do is obviously is, you know, my mental state and my visual observations were to look and put two and two together, police, two-piece bikini, middle of the night in winter. That's quite obviously raising some alarm bells for safety for me. So we have various um, systems in Victoria where we can look into someone's past history if they've been involved with our services. So it might be um, the network that I work for, we have our own notes electronically or um, statewide databases. So I looked at both of those to get a bit of an idea of a history before I went in. And I discovered that this person um, on, on the state database had a long history of a diagnosis of um, bipolar affective disorder. There was also a history of struggling with substance use there was a history of treatment orders. So there's different types of treatment orders. And in Victoria in 2014, the language changed slightly, um, but there was a history of community treatment orders, which is where it is compulsory for you to receive mental health treatment um, and engage in that mental health treatment in the community. And there was also a history of inpatient assessment orders where they needed treatment in hospital as well. I noticed a long history of case management, gaps of about three to six months in between where um, she wasn't case managed and um, but then returning to case management. When I looked at our notes, I had a read that, um, you know, under the Mental Health Act, we like people to have a say in their own treatment and, and to not be compulsory. And we like them to be what we call voluntarily rather crudely or informal, but where someone is able to take control over their own health. And that's the ultimate aim. And that's what we look for when we, one of the things that we talk about in recovery-based treatment I looked at that and I noticed that um, the person was kind of disengaging. There weren't any acute risks. And under the Mental Health Act, the clinician felt that, you know, it wasn't really suitable to be placing uh, her on a, a community treatment order. But the typical pattern was, as I'd noticed beforehand, that she would disengage with treatment not take her medication, perhaps use some substances, have some difficult social circumstances, then wind up really unwell and then needing to be put back on treatment orders. So that's a really important um, background. And whilst I say that my mind is not made up at that point in time, because I do like to keep an open mind and I do want people to be involved in their treatment, those are some alarm bells for me. That's some pretty compelling evidence that someone is really at risk and potentially the community is at risk as too because one of the other things I can look at into someone's history is when they're unwell, a history of aggression, for example, on alerts. 
So before I have a chat with her, once again, I want to arm myself with as much information as I can, because at the end of the day, whilst I want to support people, I do have to do an assessment and I have to assess risk um, to make sure that the people that I'm supporting are safe and the community around them are safe. When I talk about community, I'm also talking about family members, vulnerable populations, um, as well as the wider community. So I spoke with um, the police that brought her down. Seems that they'd been trying to catch um, this lady for um, some period during the day. There were reports that uh, she was in a, a public place, and I won't be too graphic, but I might just say that she was practising in some sexualised behaviour. And I guess it was behaviour. I've got young children that I wouldn't want them to see, and I certainly wouldn't want this poor lady to be, you know, when she's well, I would imagine that that's the sort of thing that would be really confronting if you were aware of some of the things that you were you were engaged with um, during that. And it's just, you know, quite a risk for her as well. So there was some fairly serious sexualised behaviour going on that would put her and those around her at risk. So there'd been some reports by the community about that with some descriptions. The description was that she was in public places in, you know, a two-piece bikini in public and people were concerned. Um, that had been happening during the day, but they hadn't been able to locate her. A patrol was out at about 2.30 in the morning and they noticed that this lady was at um, a traffic camera, um, kind of like one of those traffic camera boxes, and was basically punching it and still in her uh, two-piece bikini. And it's about three or four degrees outside. They picked her up. Um, she was very, very unpleased about being picked up by police. So backup was called and a took about six police officers to be able to contain her distress. She was essentially um, at the traffic camera um, damaging it because she thought it was a poker machine that had stolen all her money. So you can see one of the things that we look at is thought processes and stream of flow. She was obviously quite confused by what was going on, which was really unfortunate. So as part of my background information, we call it collateral information, I had a chat with uh, one of the police officers about their perspective. This was one of the first responders and they gave me that background information as well. Police have powers under what we call Section 351, under the Mental Health Act here in Victoria, to compel someone to come down to an emergency department for an assessment. I think it's important to remember police are not mental health clinicians. They are put in a whole range of difficult circumstances and I think that they're acutely aware of how distressing and traumatising this can be for a person. They tried to encourage her to come into um, the police car, not the van. They'd spoken about how angry she was, how she just wasn't making any sense, how she looked cold. They thought that she needed some medical attention as well and they brought her down. Um, she was basically yelling and screaming at them the whole time. And it was a very difficult experience for her. My first concern was any acute medical concerns. She was, she's shivering, she's blue in colour. Once again, she is dressed inappropriately for the middle of winter in the evening. The medical team came in and she was warmed up effectively and given some treatment. Because she'd been unwell um, for a little while, she'd neglected herself with some of her fluid intake and drinks and things like that. She'd also had some alcohol recently as well and some uh, substance use. So I, I mention this because, you know, we are a team in emergency. We all have a, a range of things to do from the nursing staff to make sure that the observations are fine to administering medication to the medical team to be making sure that, you know, she's not going to decompensate and that she can recover and we can make her feel better as well. Because you can imagine experiencing a mental illness and then on top of it all, being unwell physically. 
reflecting on how I felt at the time, you're a bit on edge. I sensed where this was going. I sensed that she didn't want to be here and I sensed that it was likely that she was going to require hospital treatment and I sensed that she wasn't want to go in go in. And I was trying to think about firstly getting her information, getting her story, how I would draw it out, being aware of, you know, trauma-informed practice while I'm talking with her, that there's every chance that she's experiencing a trauma. She's here where she doesn't want to be. There's security and police around. She's confused. Um, This is going to be very distressing for her. You know, emergency can be, it's a wonderful place where we do wonderful work, but it's not a quiet recovery atmosphere. At the moment, we are working on how we can change this. There are some wonderful alternatives in Victoria. Part of, the, I guess, the ways that we can make people for, feel more comfortable is through, I guess, as a social worker, the use of self. And by myself being approachable and friendly and recovery-based and human and trying to connect and being aware of all the traumas that, that she's probably experienced in the past and that she's experiencing now and to hear that. But knowing that her way of communicating is going to be really difficult for her because she is in a crisis. And whenever you're in a crisis, if you've ever tried to contain yourself within a crisis, you know how difficult it is if you're feeling unwell, you're scared. If a loved one is feeling unwell, you're scared. So you are vulnerable to a range of different emotions. You're, I guess, so I'm wondering how I'm going to approach her. I'm also a little bit worried. It's always unpleasant um, when you have to put someone on an inpatient assessment order. Um, and it's particularly unpleasant when, you know, the emotions are running high. So I went in and I guess my first thing was to try and welcome her and, and you know, just try and make her feel at ease and feel comfortable. Hi, I'm really sorry that you're here. This must be very distressing. Are you warm enough? I understand you're really cold when you came in. Can I get you a cup of tea? I often tell, I've heard um, some staff say, I don't do cups of tea. And I've told people, well, you can spend 15 minutes trying to build rapport with someone or you can offer them a cup of tea. Um, and it's the same with if you're a cat clinician offering to take your shoes off if it's safe to do so. It's just it's a, such a human thing to do. So offering someone a cup of tea or coffee or hot drink or cold drink, it's a really human social things that you do. As friends, you come in and go, oh, can I make you a cup of tea? And it's you automatically kind of go into that slightly more relaxed system. Sadly, none of this was working. And I was trying to talk with her about what's been going on, what's she, you know, what's she feeling, what's, you know, how's, what's her perspective of what is happening, what's she been doing today. And I guess as part of an assessment, I'm assessing stream of flow of thought. I'm assessing how someone is able to express those thoughts, whether it is logical based or whether it is what we'd call tangential or whether it is really fast and rapid or whether there's poverty of thought because those sorts of things will come into, you know, how someone is able to make an informed decision about their, their treatment. Um, she was talking rapidly. She was crying and then she might laugh briefly and then she'll get very angry. She'll want to leave. The police will have to go in. She just wasn't engaging with me because, let's face it, she's seen people like me before and she knows generally the outcome is, sadly, it's often mechanical restraints and sedation. So she just didn't want to engage with me at all. And really, it was mostly go away, F off, um, you know, there's nothing wrong. I want to go home. Why am I here? All those kind of things, trying to ascertain that in, in a non-judgmental um, way as I could. Trying to ascertain risk. Are you feeling well? Do you feel yourself? Are you feeling that, you know, if you go, do you think there's any risks for you? Do you remember this afternoon there were some incidents? There's been reports from the public that apparently you were doing X, Y, and Z. Does that worry you? Is there anyone else that would worry about you? Would you worry about anyone else in those circumstances? Trying the best, I guess, to engage in a calm manner. But sadly, this was about 10 minutes and it was really just a cycle of um, 
frankly, uh, I guess, a barrage of insults at me and at being here and at the police and really focused on why she was here. Before I make the decision to, I guess, place her on an inpatient assessment order to put her into hospital, I thought I will be totally thorough about this and try and get some collateral um, and speak with um, a relative. And there was a relative being her mother. Um, so I thought I would have a chat with her mother, see if there's any other treatment options, any other way we could get around this. You know, if the mum was able to say, look, in the past when this has happened, she's responded well to this. Or even if she's gone into hospital, this medication's better than that medication or don't put her in with, you know, all male nurses and, and things like that. So trying to be as recovery-based and, and as least restrictive as I can. The mum said that basically she's been missing for a week. She's been very worried about her. She's spoken with police as well. I guess this is where I go back to the Mental Health Act. And, and in Victoria, we have a number of different parts of the Mental Health Act. So in emergency, a clinician such as myself, if you're an accredited mental health clinician working with a uh, in a public health accredited service, you can place someone on what we call an inpatient assessment order for 24 hours. And there's different assessment orders. So there's the inpatient assessment order, which lasts for 24 hours. And within that period, you have to see a psychiatrist. You are compelled to see a psychiatrist. And then beyond that, the psychiatrist can decide to extend that inpatient assessment order if, you know, they think something might be resolved in the next 24, 48 hours or place someone on a temporary treatment order. And then beyond that, there's community treatment orders and things like that. So it sounded like the decision was that I'm going to have to place her on an inpatient assessment order. And I guess at this point in time, I'm feeling a little bit apprehensive. I pop back in there and I offer her a bed and I say, I'm really worried and explain why. And I'm you know, I say to her, this is going to be a confronting and a difficult conversation. And I want you to know you can ask me any question you like. Um, and I will give you a straight answer. Because it, you know, it's kind of come to that point where there's there's no point in dancing around fluffy language, you can still be caring and, and direct, but just give that clarification that that's where we're going. You know, I think I, I'd like to put you in into hospital. This is why. Will you come in? We'd love to support you. You know, if we put this place, you know, we've got gender sensitive areas. Um, you know, we've got um, intensive care areas. We can really provide you with some intense support because I, I'm really worried that you're not yourself. Any questions? So I guess at this point in time, I'm feeling quite apprehensive. Um, people have tried to assault me in the past with TVs and knives and pens and um, all sorts of things. Um, and especially in these circumstances where people feel that I'm acting unfair. So I was a little bit worried. I was a little bit apprehensive, but at the same time, I wanted to support her and I wanted to try and make her feel um, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit safer. So I worked with her and we had an open conversation, at least I tried to, which was being in a caring way upfront with her and saying, you know, offering her an admission, saying, would you like to come in? Um, she didn't want to, and she became quite agitated at the prospect. I placed her under um, an inpatient assessment order because there was, to summarise, an imminent risk to her, an imminent risk to the community. There weren't any less restrictive opportunities, you know, to um, treat her. It had to be done on the ward and she needed to see a psychiatrist for further treatment. I know that that area is a little bit controversial for some social workers and for some people in general that are uncomfortable with putting people on assessment orders um, and making them compulsory. I would love it if we lived in a world where there were enough services in the community that we could prevent that, that there are enough supports. And I think that the, the fact that people end up compulsory for the larger picture, not entirely, but for the larger picture is a flaw in the, the system overall. And that's disappointing. My view as a social worker is I want someone to recover and I want someone to have a full life. They're not going to recover 
if they leave the department and they kill themselves or they die by misadventure or they have a serious adverse event or, you know, she develops a sexually transmitted infection that has a serious consequence for her. So I guess my role in placing someone on an inpatient assessment order as caring and as gently as I can is the first step to their recovery. And I know that's controversial and it's a wider discussion in itself, but that's where I sit in emergency. It's by this time a little bit after four in the morning. This person is at significant risk to herself and the community and that's where we sit. So I informed her of that. I let her know of her rights. She does have rights. We have a booklet. Sadly, she got very angry. She tried to leave the department and we needed to provide her with some sedation, really for her safety and and the safety of those that were around her. She was very angry, unfortunately. After about four hours, she was transferred to our intensive care area on the ward. And I believe that shortly after we were able to send her to our gender sensitive area. I often in emergency don't get to know the outcomes of what happens. So, you know, people often talk about what's that like. So I've seen this real crisis and basically for the end of it for me is to pop someone on the ward and then then I have to move on to the next person. Um, And people wonder about, you know, what happened to her, what happened to them, how do you sit with that? And I guess I'd say is I'm comfortable enough with my role, which is being there for people in crisis. And it fits back to my values, as I mentioned at the start of a social worker. We see a lot of recovery in emergency, and I'm blessed to see that. I deal with people that I am in admiration of, not just the workers that I work with, but the people that have tremendous adversity, and they manage to get up each day and keep going, and occasionally they have these really difficult times where they require our support. I am fortunate, blessed. I will see people come into the emergency department suicidal. They might have tried to kill themselves. They might have serious ideation. I'm able to talk with them. I'm able to talk with their family or any other, you know, relevant others that that are important to their care. And after just a few hours, they can walk out of the department with hope, no longer feeling suicidal. That is an amazing shift. And it is just, uh, I guess, a real blessing at the risk of sounding completely sucky to be involved in that. Not to cause it, it's not me. It's the skills of other people and their resilience that do that and their supports around them. It's just my job to to utilise those and to tap into those as I do an assessment and support people. So I guess upon reflection with cases like these, they're difficult. She has had the best chance to recover and that's important to me. And I guess that's what I deal with in emergency a lot is that opportunity for people to recover. Can we talk a little bit about the unique nature of this particular social worker's role, Mim? Yeah. So let's just reiterate. This is a social worker working in an emergency department. His main role is to do mental health assessments in an emergency setting and it's at night. So let's just reflect. We've both done on-call in emergency. We've worked in emergency. Yeah. What do you recall an emergency department being like, especially at, let's just say, 8pm? Oh, uh, I think we're talking about an incredibly busy space, Liz. We're talking about a lot of noise. The bright, bright fluorescent lights are on all the time. And you've got, even though there are curtains sometimes put up between beds, it's not always. And those curtains are very flimsy. So you can hear every single thing that is happening with every single patient and the discussions between every single staff member on that floor. Right, so lots of noise, bright lights, um, people rushing through, distressed relatives. There's always people who are distressed in that space, right? And so imagine this poor woman 
coming in, being brought in by police. She's very unwell walking into this place. Yeah, and it's a place she's been in before, right? Oh, I would imagine many times. Yes. And so let's now reflect on this social worker and what he tells us in relation to how he works with this particular woman. Yeah. Again, Mim, let's peel back the layers. I want to start with the assessment process using a trauma-informed lens. So this is someone who steps us right through how he would work with this person. He's doing a lot of observation work. So he's a woman that's been brought in middle of winter, and we're talking Melbourne, so I think one to two degrees, in a red bikini. Yeah. So already, observation one, been brought in by police, highly agitated, probably yelling. Yes. And then he goes in and looks at her history through the notes. Yeah, and I love the emphasis he actually put on that history reading, right? Like how important it is to ground yourself in what's happened before. There's pros and cons, I think we've talked about this before, there's pros and cons of knowing too much or not knowing enough, right? But actually when you've got someone who is clearly used to that emergency space and being unwell in that emergency space, then knowing that history and what's come before is going to be really essential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then he moves from that historic space into a conversation with her too. So I really like the use of just normal assessment skills, like the the conversation where he got a sense of the pace of how she was speaking, what her thoughts were like. Yeah. And then there was a conversation with the mum. So lots of levels just in the assessment process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the thinking through, he was really clearly able to verbalise all the points of risk that were happening around this person. Can you pull them out yeah, a little more? so um, he wasn't just thinking about the really obvious risk factors, like, you know, is she is she unsafe to herself or to other people? Uh, what does the history tell him about that? But what does her current circumstances tell her about that? Tell him about that? But he was also thinking about things like, like you say, she's in a bikini. It's the middle of winter. If we discharge her now. We're discharging her to the streets to a seasonally unsafe situation. Yeah. Um, if and it's not it's not a judgment about the bikini. It's about seasonally. What risk is this woman at? Right. I think there were so many layers of risk that he was talking through that really that when you say an assessment process, I think it's not just the assessment that he's doing with the woman. It's the assessment he's doing in his mind, in the background at the same time. I mean, there was another element to the risk assessment, and that was to this woman's reputation. Yeah. That I thought was really sensitive and respectful. And that is, I think he mentioned that there'd been some highly sexualized behavior going on in the park. And he was being very reflective of, I wouldn't want my kids to see it, but I know that once she's well, what would she be thinking about that whole incident as well. That's right. So there's also that time, like throwing himself into the future as well. So very much a recovery lens. That's right. And I don't, I think it's not just respectful, Liz, it's also an acknowledgement that mental health is not a stagnant point in time, Mm. that actually people go through an amazing amount of an array of factors and variables that influence their mental health over a lifetime. And that actually where she is right now, presenting in the way that she is right now, is not who she's going to be 
in the near future or the far future, right? This is just a slice, a moment in time. And that for me is really grounded in honouring her and her journey in this world and, and respect. Indeed. And I think he talked about it as being the first step. Yeah, that idea of that coming into emergency, you know, it's a crisis space, yes, but it's also an opportunity for recovery. That's the phrase he used, opportunity for recovery. And I really love that. And if you think about it, like let's step out of the mental health um, domain for a moment. You think about someone who's come in who's been traumatised in a car accident. We do the exact same thing with them. Yeah. We will sedate, we will place them in ICU and connect them to machines that are going to care for them for a while whilst their body's recovering from the trauma. Yeah. In some regards, there's lots of parallels, right? Mm. It's a recovery space in a different way, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, you and I were speaking with some uh, British social workers the other day and they we were talking about uh, being in an emergency department and responding and, um, and they were saying that social workers often aren't there in the emergency department and I think that they're in the hospitals in other ways but not necessarily in that crisis space and I do think this story really illustrates what the role of social work can be in that emergency space, right? That it's, this social worker is a particularly a mental health social worker, right? So actually there's a mental health lens on the core work that he does there. But we've had a number of episodes, I think, Liz, now, which has shown different angles of working in emergency. And I think the argument for social work to be there in that crisis space so that it's not only a response space, it's also an opportunity for recovery, an opportunity to move forward, is really, really important. Mm, I agree. Can we take a moment to talk about use of self? Yeah. Um, I loved how he articulated how he uses himself in being friendly in um, the recovery-based um, way in which he works, being connection-focused. And I think I had to have a chuckle, but even things like the rapport building of the cup of tea. You know? Oh, God, I love that, Liz. So the idea, I love when he said, you can either make a cup of tea or you can spend 20 minutes trying to build rapport. And I thought, isn't that like such a fundamental lesson for students, social workers to learn, right? Just these simple acts of kindness and respect go so far in developing rapport and actually stabilizing a relationship with someone who you are the, you this is the one moment they are meeting you and you are meeting them right this story that he told was actually quite short it was actually quite small but it was a classic emergency intervention it was but there's also that element that i also wanted to pick up mim about um, his this social worker's uh, responsibility in actually removing this woman's liberty yeah. for albeit 24 hours. But I think the way in which he discussed that, this is someone who's not taking this lightly. He's actually removing her liberty for 24 hours in order for her to start this recovery. But it wasn't, it, you could hear it, the constant debating in his mind about where she is in that mental health illness of hers and what it's going to mean if for 24 hours we have our psychiatrist assess her, what is that going to mean? And even to the point where he was very open with her about what what he, he thought needed to happen. And I loved how he even shared his, his language around that. Yeah. And I, that constant debate in his mind about openness versus 
her agitation and whether he was also putting himself at risk or anyone else should she be discharged, including, of course, herself. It's that professional responsibility, Liz, right? Uh, and I think if we... Let's look at this just from the um, practice standards for a second. And each country, right, will have their own practice standards that they work towards. Uh, but, you know, in Australia, we're grounded in dignity of person, respect, professional integrity. And I think those those ways that this social worker orientated themselves in the assessment process and then the decision-making process, uh, it's, it looks very small on the surface, but actually it's really heavily grounded in those core practice standards. Thank you, Mim. And this is like a little um, heads up to students that are about to start their placement. You've just heard a social work academic talk about how you use practice standards in examining the practice of social work. Beautiful. Yeah, so if you're writing those learning contracts, mid-placement reports, end-placement reports, that's how you demonstrate the practice standards. I would challenge all social work students to go back, listen to this story with their practice standards in front of them. With their field educators. With their field educators, because we know field educators as well are not always up on the practice standards. And uh, just see where are the moments in this story that you can align the practice standards to? Because I do think it's actually really clear. This is one of those stories where the social worker really clearly demonstrates those eight practice standards. Wow. What a, I, like, I love this conversation. And what a great way to start 2023 with it, really. Like, students starting placement we're going to take students i know there's so much stuff happening this year right liz like it's it's building up to be a year of surprises and unveiling and i have to say there is something that happened over the summer that was very quietly happened that actually we haven't announced which is we hit over five hundred thousand downloads half a million people what is that virtual social work community out there doing right crazy downloading of podcasts I think I love it so a big thank you to our listeners but also a big thank you to the social worker who shared their practice story and all the social workers who have it's actually an astounding virtual community that's being created here and um, of practitioners just sharing and learning from each other I love it me too yeah let's never stop let's just keep on Let's just keep on listening to these stories and having conversations about them. Yep, absolutely. But listeners, uh, that's now been said very clearly in the audio space. So I think we can all hold Liz to that, right? There goes my (laughs) retirement. Take it easy, Liz, and all of you. Happy 2023. We hope you get some good rest this year, some nourishment and some great conversations with each other. Indeed. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, We would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, 
or you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.